It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, October 22nd, 2010. It's the eve of my debate with Doug Padgett. And I'm not in studio. You're listening to Memorex. Yeah, do you remember those commercials? Yeah, you know, see if you can tell if this is live or if it's Memorex. Well, yeah, you know, Memorex doesn't even have any meaning anymore in the days of MP3, AAC files, AIF files, and, well, computerized recording. But still, you know, I like to think, you know, this is Memorex. <laughs> That's right, you're time traveling. You, you're actually hearing me in the past. Thank you. <laughs> you know, that happens all the time. Anyway, thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there, and, well... We challenge those things. I mean, there's a lot of pastors who really shouldn't be behind the pulpit because they're not qualified to be there. And I'm not talking morally. I'm not talking about a bunch of guys out there, you know, uh, you know, living in some kind of uh, polygamous compound or, you know, or w- running through women like, you know, they're, they're Kleenex. No, I'm talking about guys who don't meet the biblical qualifications because they don't correctly handle God's word. Yeah, yeah, it's not enough that you have a morally upstanding guy in the pulpit. You need a morally upstanding guy who also rightly handles God's word, correctly distinguishes between law and gospel, sin and grace, and proclaims repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. And as a result of it, since there's a lot of unqualified pastors who've qualified themselves and made an end run around, uh, you know, what would, you know, the, these qualifications for pastors. And they're teaching things that, ought, that they ought not to teach because they're not taught in the Bible. Well, we challenge those guys here on a regular basis at Fighting for the Faith and help basically in the process to teach you how to stop and go, wait a second, just because this guy claims to be a man of God doesn't mean that he is. Let's test out whether he is according to the clear teaching of the Bible. And then you you know, you, you know, you don't have to be in submission to somebody who isn't qualified to be a pastor and is teaching things that he ought not to teach. Yeah, that's a form of bondage, spiritual deception, if you would. And so we want to set you free from spiritual deception. And here's the fun part. Even what I say, you can't just trust me. You have to compare what I say in the name of God to the Word of God. Yeah, I, that's that's how this all works. And and by the way, there's extra bonus points on the final uh, if you are capable of comparing what I say in the name of God to the Word of God. doesn't matter, you know, I don't, you know listen, you know, work it out. But uh, on the final, there's bonus points. So if you if you want to pass the final end, uh, no, I'm kidding. There's no final. All right, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Uh, we yesterday we listened to part one of J.I. Packer's lecture on the doctrine of the Trinity. We'll be listening to part two today, and um, and so we're going to just kind of pick up where we left off yesterday. And uh, so with that, here is uh, Dr. J.I. Packer on the doctrine of the Trinity, part two. Here we go. We've seen what the doctrine of the Trinity means. We've seen whence that doctrine is learned. It's learned from the scriptures, and we've looked at some of the passages that clearly teach it. Now, I said question four. It's actually question three that we have to look at first. My question number three is this. What is the importance of the truth of the Trinity? We can see this, I think, by asking what we have when we believe it, and where we are, what we lack, if we try to go through the study of the Bible without it. I put it to you, as I said indeed earlier, 
that the truth of the Trinity keeps the Christian faith in shape, I put it to you also that the truth of the Trinity keeps the Christian life in shape. The truth of the Trinity keeps the faith in shape by holding us to the thought of the three divine persons, co-equal but yet functioning in a certain fixed relationship whereby the Son and the Spirit do the Father's will and the Spirit does the will of the Son as well as the will of the Father. Um, we, 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 we need to be held to the view of the three persons as together doing what I called earlier a team job in the work of our salvation. And the doctrine of the Trinity holds us to that. And we need that. And if we let the tr truth of the Trinity go, not only are we likely not to be able to hold to this understanding of the nature of our salvation, but we're also unlikely to have our Christian life in good shape. It isn't enough to say that the truth of the Trinity stands for the thought that we are conscious of God above us, be, um, beside us, and within us. Although that is something that is very often said as if that was all that the doctrine of the Trinity really means. Uh, I put it to you that we need to be very clear that the first person of the Trinity is Father, as far as we are concerned, and is fulfilling towards us a paternal ministry. He's provided salvation for us through the Son and the Spirit. He's providing heaven for us. And as we live here and now in the enjoyment of his salvation and traveling the road to heaven, so he deals with us as a human father deals with his children. He wants us to grow up into a maturity and fullness of character, which will stand us in good stead and will make us a credit to the family. So he disciplines us for our blessing, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Uh, you recognize those words. They come from the first half of Hebrews chapter 12, which tells you all about it. Don't forget God's fatherly discipline. That's the theme of the first half of Romans chapter 12. If you don't focus on the ministry of the father, uh, you are left with a kind of Christianity into which the thought of standards for the family and discipline, sometimes tough discipline, which is meant to mature your character, is not going to enter. A book was written by the one-time secretary of the English Fountain Trust, the leading charismatic structure for quite some years, in which the author, Tom Smale by name, strongly develops this thought. He called the book The Forgotten Father, and he maintained that one of the weaknesses that he had seen in the charismatic movement over the years was that insufficient attention was paid to the father and his fatherly discipline and the maturing purpose of it. In the absence of that, said Smale, all the emphasis was placed on emotional highs and blessings of the present, um, and the discipline thought was simply forgotten. So, according to him, uh, charismatic Christians tend both to stay immature, because it's only discipline that ripens and matures the character, and they also tended to, uh, they also tended to lack staying power and run out of steam which is what happens if you live too much on your emotions. I leave it to you to decide whether this was a fair line of argument, whether it would be fair as applied to the charismatic people that you know and perhaps uh, the charismatic person that you are. 
I am only telling you that a theologian who was secretary of, the, of a charismatic body and so had plenty of opportunity to observe charismatics did, in fact, think it worth his while to write a book saying, that, saying this. And whether or not you think that it was a fair comment on any charismatics known to you, I think you will agree that the theological point in itself is inescapably right, even if you don't agree that it applies in the way that Tom Snail thought it did. And it's on the theological point that I'm laying emphasis now. If you forget about the Father, if you don't focus sufficiently on his fatherly ministry of discipline and training and maturing us, the children, you are missing something which is stressed in the New Testament uh, when the New Testament deals with the present realities of the Christian life. It's easier to see where we would be if we didn't highlight the divine ministry of the Son. We would be left with some form of natural religion into which redemption didn't enter. And there is, of course, much religion of that kind in the world. One of you yesterday said to me, uh, by the way, for the benefit of the camera, let me say that uh, I was talking to, talking of a member of the class, um, before which I am giving all this material that you, O oh camera, are recording so diligently for posterity. All right? And you can hear them giggling, O oh camera, as I say that. Okay, but now, one, one member of the class um, spoke to me about a particular writer whose material has been advertised, and advertised in a way which suggests that that's exactly the wavelength that he is on. Uh, he believes in a creator, sure, and he believes in nature mysticism. He's all for seeking a sense of fellowship with God through communing with created things. But it doesn't sound from the advertisements as if he's going to say anything about redemption. And it may be that he is a Unitarian who has no place for the divine savior and his work. Suppose, again, that you tried to project Christianity by talking exclusively of the Father and the Son and not at all about the Spirit. Where would you be then? Once more, your Christian life would be out of shape. You would have uh, a Christian life based on belief in a Creator and a Savior, but it would be a Christian life into which there wouldn't be any thought of new di dispositions, new energies, new power, new God-given ability, it would inevitably become, a, become a, a life of perspiration rather than inspiration, a life of works and labor in the vicious sense of that phrase, a life in which, after all that the Father and the Son have done, you are seeking to work your way to glory. As I said, the, uh, Je the Jehovah's Witnesses are, in fact, a modern example of that, and so were the medieval the medieval adherence of the Western Church, in which, very significantly, there was no developed doctrine of the Holy Spirit at all. So ordinary Christians were only taught to believe in the Father and the Son. Uh, the Holy Spirit was uh, referred to, but never explained. So in the absence of any expectations of life and power from the Holy Spirit, they set themselves to work their way to heaven. Whenever the Holy Spirit is neglected, that's the sort of legalistic religion that results. Nature abhors a vacuum and fills it. Where there's no strong teaching about life in the spirit, there will certainly be quite strong teaching about the life of effort and merit. So we need the doctrine of the Trinity to keep our Christian life in shape. And that's the second aspect of its importance. A question is sometimes raised. Is it proper to sing hymns to the Holy Spirit as we sing hymns and make prayers too to the Father and to the Son? 
The answer to that, I think, is that though there's no example of it in the New Testament, which shows that it's not intended to be standard practice, yet it can't be wrong because the Holy Spirit is divine. However, there is a rule in these matters, and Jesus gave it to us. When you pray, say, Father. That wasn't simply Jesus telling us that when we think of the first person of the Trinity, we should think of him as Father. That is Jesus telling us that the Father should ordinarily be the object of our prayers, and similarly of the worship that we address in our hymns. But when there is specific reason to pray to Christ, then that may properly be done, and one finds New Testament believers doing it. As when Stephen, having seen a vision of Jesus standing to welcome Stephen home, prays, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And when Paul, with his thorn in the flesh, uh, prays to Jesus, the healer, asking that the thorn may be miraculously healed. In fact, it isn't. But it's clear that it's Christ to whom he's praying. It's Christ, therefore, who says to Paul, uh, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul was praying to the Lord Jesus because Jesus was the healer. Uh, and that was what made this prayer appropriate. Well, if one is seeking from God that which it's the Holy Spirit's special ministry to give, it's not at all inappropriate to ask the Holy Spirit to bestow it. Though the prayer would be just as good if you asked the Father or the Son for the same blessing. And then it would be given through the Spirit. We mustn't be superstitious about this. But sobriety in the matter of uh, our prayers and our hymns will, I think, keep us focusing on the Father according to the New Testament pattern, much more than we focus on either of the other two persons of the Godhead as the direct object of our address. And now I move on from the question of the importance of the doctrine of the Trinity and the way that we are to handle it, not just in our orthodoxy, but in our Christian living. But I come to my question number four. How is the doctrine best stated? Here we have a choice between just two options. There's no third one. One can either state the truth, the, the truth of the Trinity as the doctrine of the one God who is three persons, which is the way that nearly all theologians have gone in history, or else one can state it as the doctrine of the three, di the three divine persons who are one God. In itself, it is surely proper to say that the unity and the threeness, the oneness and the threeness, are equally fundamental in the, rea in the reality of God. But when one is coming at the doctrine, approaching it and stating it and formulating it to oneself, one can begin at either end, either with the oneness or with the threeness. I'm going to argue here that both ways of talking of the Trinity are perfectly legitimate, and there is, but, but, but that there is something specially significant um, in both of them, which makes it necessary at different times to use both of them. So I would like to try and help you, if I can, to master both of these formulations and to see what point each has. As I said, the majority pattern, the, 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 the majority vote, let's put it that way, has gone to the doctrine of God as the one who is three. It is perhaps worth pinpointing some of the highlights in that discussion. Highlight number one relates to the second and third and fourth centuries, in which, for most of the time at any rate, Christianity was a prohibited religion, but in which, nonetheless, the gospel was making enormous headway all through the Roman Empire 
because it, it, it taught a way of life that had dignity, and it taught a hope of glory which no other form of religion in the Roman Empire uh, could match. And the people of those days lived their life scared of evil influences, and they were scared of dying, and the doctrine of the Christian hope had tremendous evangelistic force. But the gospel was spreading through the Roman world. It was out of the Jewish world. And in the Roman world, nothing was known of the Old Testament background, but much was known of the kind of uh, analytical logic that you associate with professional philosophers. After all, the Greek heritage, um, part of the culture of the Roman world, was a philosophical heritage, and philosophical questions built big in people's minds. And one of the philosophical questions that uh, was immediately picked up and pressed against the Christi Christians was what I may call the mathematical question that arose when the Christians said, there is one God to worship, as inheritors of Jewish monotheism, of course they said that, and Jesus Christ is the Son of God and he is to be worshipped also. Said the, said the hearers, wait a minute, you said there was one God and you've actually told us about two gods. And that was the form of the question to which the earliest Christian theologians had to learn to respond. They responded to it in different ways. They, all of them insisted that there's only one God. They tried various formulations to justify their keeping on saying that when they did at the same time want to teach people to trust and worship and love Jesus, which they did. Some of them said, desperately, because this is a mistake, I nailed it at the, beginning of the, uh, at the beginning of the presentation. Well, you see, there is one divine person, but he plays different roles. And others said, equally desperately, well, the Son of God, Jesus, whom we tell you to worship, isn't on the same footing as the Father. He is God of a weaker strain. That's where that idea came in. Um, the uh, one God in more than one role idea is, I called it modalism before, it's, um, it's also been called Sabellianism after a man named Sabellius who taught it. And the view that, Jesus, that the Son is God of a weaker strain than the Father, that's the view which has gone down to history as the Logos doctrine, and that was actually affirmed by quite a number of the major theologians of the early church. Too many, in fact, to make it worth reeling off their names. You'll find the names, anyway, on the resource sheet, the handout, when you read it through. Uh, look at pages 2 and 3 for the Logos Doctrine. There came a time, this is the second high spot in the story, there came a time when a gentleman named Arius, A-R-I-U-S, a presbyter in the church at Alexandria, picked up the Logos Doctrine and shook it, as it were, and began to teach this. We all say that Jesus is the Logos, that is the word or reason of the Father, and we explain this in terms of a mysterious and awkward formula that though there's only one God, Jesus is a second divine person even though his divinity is not as strong as the divinity of the Father. This doctrine really is a muddle, it isn't credible, let's get rid of it. Let's say what seems rational and sensible to say that Jesus, the Son of God, is in fact the first and noblest of God's creatures, created by the Father from nothing at the beginning of history, in order that he might then be the Father's agent in creating everything else. Uh, 
Arius was prepared to argue from a number of New Testament texts that this was the natural view for a New Testament believer to take. Argue this way, said Arius, and you've solved the problem of the one God and the two persons to be worshipped. Uh, not that he said, not, he said, not that I want to stop you worshipping Jesus, but understand that when you call him son of God, you're giving him a courtesy title. You're calling him son of God because of his dignity as top creature. You are not implying his personal deity. There was a man named Athanasius who came down on Arian teaching like a ton of bricks. You've probably heard his name and I expect you can spell it, but just in case, let me spell it for you. A-T-H-A-N-A-S-I-U-S. Athanasius. Athanasius said, if the Jesus, the Son of God, is a creature, it is wrong to worship him. And if Jesus, Son of God, is a creature, it is useless to look to him to bring us to God. It takes God to bring us to himself. And if the Son, Son of God, so called, is not God, he cannot bring us to God. And further, said Athanasius, the texts on which Arius relies don't teach anything like what he thinks they teach. Arius' doctrine must be condemned, said Athanasius. And in fact, it was condemned at a couple of general councils. The Council of Nicaea in 323 and the Council of Constantinople in 381. The third high spot that we must now hit is the achievement of Augustine who wrote a massive volume, 20 separate books composed over a period of nearly 30 years and running to nearly 500 pages in translation, a massive volume on the Trinity in which he stood, as it were, on the shoulders of Athanasius and some other 4th century thinkers who had dotted the I's and crossed the T's of Athanasius' insistence that the Father and the Son are two persons within a single divine unity, that's the thing that Athanasius did insist on, that's the point that was carried at uh, Nicaea and Constantinople. Augustine, writing between 400 and 430, stood, as I say, on the shoulders of Athanasius in affirming these things, and produced a work on the Trinity which still stands as an all-time classic. Most of it is exegesis, building up the doctrine of the three divine persons who are the one God, from various passages of the Bible. But Augustine introduced a new thought, which no theologian had uh, dreamed of, really, before him. Uh, that's the thought which um, is summarized, you'll find on the third page of the handout, under 3D, evident Trinitarianism. The thought was that since it was the triune God who made the world, there must be traces of God's threeness in the world. The background of this certainty on Augustine's part was a belief that he picked up from Plato and many philosophers in the Platonic tradition to the effect that the visible things of this world are pointers to some more profound reality that lies behind them. And Augustine had Christianized this notion and he's thinking of all created things as pointing one way or another to aspects and facets of God. And so he posits that there must be in nature, in, in the created order, some instances of the kind of three-in-one-ness, uh, or the one who is three, if you prefer the other formula, corresponding to the three-in-oneness of the God, the one God who is three. And he set himself to look around for analogies, that is, reflections, really, of the divine threeness 
in the created order. And he produced three psychological ones, all of which have to do with the life of the human individual. Uh, the first one was the reality of love. St. Augustine, where you have love as a reality of human life, there are three um, elements that need to be distinguished in the situation in order for you, you to understand it. There is the lover, the person from whom the love comes. There is the beloved, the one who is the object of his or her affection. And there's the love that binds them together. Uh, it's mutual love, Augustine adds. He's thinking of the mutuality of love as he spells out this, um, this human analogy. Well, he says, that's a reflection. Human love is always a reflection in that way of the threeness of God. I guess you can see without my telling you what's inadequate, though, about that way of putting it. The love that binds together the two people who love each other is not a person distinct from them. So the effect of using this thought as your clue for expounding the Trinity, which is what people did increasingly after Augustine's time, is to depersonalize the Holy Spirit. And that was the problem in the medieval church. I referred to it before. Still, this was Augustine's attempt to find a trace of the Trinity in the created order. And it wasn't the only attempt he made. He also offers this. And it's down on the handout. The life of the self, he says, the life, that is, of being a conscious human being, involves memory and understanding and will, all three together in the ongoing flow of conscious mental life. Uh, we know who we are through memory. We bring to the understanding of whatever it is we're thinking about um, a good deal that we have stored up in our mind from the past, and that is memory. Understanding is the fruit of our focusing on whatever it is that we are focusing on with the help and in the power of memory. And then in our acts of uh, being a person, our mental acts, I should say, of being a person, it's not only that we remember and understand, but also that we're constantly making decisions, and decision-making is part of our mental life inseparable from the exercise of memory and understanding. So here you've got three dimensions of personal reality, all intermixed, each inseparable from the other two, all belonging together, and that's another picture of the Trinity, says Augustine. And then he had yet a third um, analogy from personal life. He talks now about sight. He says when uh, a person sees something, well, there are three things together here. There's the act of seeing, the act of uh, uh, actually focusing something before one's eyes. There's the object of sight, the thing that one sees. And there's the mental quality called attention, which means that you see what you're looking at. You do actually concentrate on that which is before your eyes, and so you see it, and so you don't, um, um, you, you don't merit the uh, comment, which sometimes is passed on us absent-minded ones, that he doesn't see what he's looking at. You do see it because you're attending to it. All right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills, and, uh, and then come right back and jump right back into uh, part two of this lecture by J.I. Packer on the Doctrine of the Trinity. 
Now, uh, Dr. Packer won't be taking any questions from you regarding the Trinity, so I'll have to step in for him. If you would like to email any questions that you have regarding the doctrine of the Trinity or things that you've heard on a previous edition of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We will be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, denying the doctrine of the Trinity basically has you believing in a false god. Yeah, God's triunity is what he's revealed about himself, and it matters. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. That's right. This is a growing uh, radio outreach, and uh, you know, we're in fact we're picking up listeners all over the planet. So, uh, and as our listenership goes up, so does our expenses, and so uh, we depend upon your financial gifts and contributions to continue doing what we're doing here and uh, meet the demands of, uh, of, a, of an expanding ministry. So if you don't already partner with us financially, then this is a good time for you to do so. And the way you do that is by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. Joining our crew, what you're doing is signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to, uh, to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you in advance 
for your generosity and support for everything that we do here at Fighting for the Faith. So now let's uh, dive back into our lecture with uh, J.I. Packer on the Doctrine of the Trinity, Part 2. Here is J.I. Packer. Well, Augustine's thought each time is that the three items mentioned correspond to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Father is the lover, the Son is the beloved, the Spirit is the love that binds them together. The Father, in whom all wisdom resides, corresponds to memory. The Son, who is the word of the Father, corresponds to understanding. The Spirit, who is the executive of the Godhead, Godhead corresponds to the will in the ongoing life of the self. And in the case of sight, um, the act of seeing is, uh, is, corresponds to the vital energy put forward by the Father. The object of sight is the Son whom the Father, on whom the Father focuses and whom the Father purposes to exalt. And the attention that the Father gives to him is another way of picturing that which the Holy Spirit as love pictured. The attention given corresponds to the Holy Spirit. Well, these are not, of course, the only analogies for, to, the, to the Trinity uh, taken from the human realm that have been used. Uh, we, in these latter days, are familiar, I'm sure, with others. Um, people wave the clover leaf at us and say, look, it's one leaf, and yet it's got these three identical leaves as part of it. Uh, they hold up before us the lump of sugar, which has not just three, but six sides, and yet is just one lump of sugar. Um, They talk about water, which is uh, sometimes ice and sometimes steam, as well as being sometimes flowing wet H2O. Um, And and there are other standard illustrations that go the rounds. I would put it to you, friends, that none of these illustrations is really any good. The way to teach the Trinity is to talk about what the Father, the Son, and the Spirit actually do according to the New Testament. To tell people, in other words, about the three persons. And just to assure them that in some real, though mysterious way, these three persons are one God, although we may properly focus our prayers and our worship on any one of the three, ordinarily on the Father, as I said a moment ago, but it's not wrong to pray to the Son, nor yet to pray to the Spirit. I think you can teach that to little children, and they'll understand it. Whether little children understand anything from those illustrations of the Trinity that we give them, I rather doubt. The Trinity was known through divine action, in which three divine persons were discerned working together. And that's how um, the Trinity is best understood still, in my view. After Augustine, there was really very little advance in the stating of the doctrine of the Trinity uh, right through to this century. Some doubted and denied, and then others came along to re-establish the doctrine, but in terms of the statement of it, Um, Nothing very much changed, and there was no real advance. Karl Barth states the doctrine of the three interacting, cooperating persons as fully as it's ever been stated. In the course of his statement of it, in uh, the first volume of his Church Dogmatics, which was translated in 1936, I think it was, um, he dissociated himself from all these Augustinian analogies. He says there are no traces of the Trinity in the created order. We know the Trinity only by revelation. I simply tell you that he says that. That's all I think that you need to know. There is more about Bart in the handout if you want to study him up. But I want to follow up now, as I round off my presentation for this afternoon, I want to follow up the thought which I spelled out two two or three sentences back, that the way to teach the Trinity 
is to set before people the whole New Testament picture of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit working together for our salvation. For that is a way of saying, and I do want explicitly now to say, that for understanding, as distinct from defense of the gospel, the second alternative way of stating the truth of the Trinity, namely that these three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, are mysteriously one, rather than saying defensively, you see, that the one God is actually three persons, but it doesn't uh, destroy his unity. This way of putting it, which focuses first on the three persons, uh, is, for, purpose, uh, for purposes of ordinary uh, man-in-the-pew understanding, uh, more illuminating than the other way of stating the matter. The pioneer here was a 20th century theologian. This way wasn't really opened up, you see, by anyone until the 20th century. Uh, the 20th century theologian was an, an, an Englishman, professor of Regis Professor of Theology at Oxford, named Leonard Hodgson, and he put out this view in a work called The Doctrine of the Trinity. Implicitly, this understanding of the Trinity is already present in Calvin, in the Puritan devotional writers, and in many more Christian authors who had dealt for practical purposes with the plan of the Father and the work of the Son and the work of the Spirit. But it had never been stated by a theologian until Hodgson came along, and in his book, The Doctrine of the Trinity, published, I think, in 1943, he does explicitly say, we should think of the Godhead, that's just a phrase from the past, by the way, it isn't a scripture phrase, and you can get on without it. You don't have to talk about the Godhead unless you want to. You can simply say, in God. In God, there are three persons. God is a society. And the way to think and talk about God is in, explicit, in an explicitly social way. That is to say, in terms of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit interrelating together all along the line. It's that doctrine... Which, uh, which establishes, maintains some of the key truths of Christianity. Um, let me pinpoint some of this by asking some questions. There is something on the handout, actually, which um, corresponds to these questions of mine on page two. Question, how do, you, how do you vindicate the deity of Christ? Part of the answer is by keeping clear both of the doctrine that there are three distinct gods and by keeping clear of the doctrine that he is the one divine person um, playing one of his three roles. Uh, question again. Uh, how do you vindicate the temporality of the universe? Now, this is a cunning point, but I th a cunning question, but I think it's a rather searching one because we know enough psychology nowadays to be aware that consciousness of oneself is only ever possible for man, and so you would suppose that it's only ever possible for God also, when you can distinguish yourself from that which is not yourself. Um, I was inspecting a three-day-old baby yesterday. Well, baby's eyes are closed most of the time, and it's very obvious that baby hasn't yet begun to differentiate herself from that which is not herself. She isn't yet looking at things, isn't yet focusing. She will very soon. And thus her self-consciousness will grow as she differentiates herself from that all around her, which is not herself. That's how we came to personal self-consciousness. That's how everybody comes to personal self-consciousness. Well, the question is, how could God have personal self-consciousness, whatever that means for God, without there being something that was not God? 
against which, or in contradistinction from which, uh, he could identify himself. If you were a Unitarian, that question would naturally bother you, and you ought to end up, as a certain school of thought nowadays called process theology does end up, by affirming the eternity of the universe. God and that which is not God, you see, would need to be co-eternal, otherwise God could never attain consciousness of who and what he is. That's the thought. It's all speculative, of course. But if you ask the question, a very neat way of replying replying to it in Trinitarian terms is to say, from all eternity, each of the persons was conscious of himself as not being either of the other two. And that's all that you need to say to dismiss the question. Of course, there may not be very much in the question. We don't know. But it can be asked. It has been asked. If it's a substantive question, well, this is the answer to it. We state the answer, and on we go. Hodgson saw this and said it, and since he did so, the doctrine of what is called the social trinity has been making slow but significant headway amongst, significant th- uh, amongst theological thinkers, and I want to commend it to you as no less orthodox than the doctrine of God as the one who is three. This is the doctrine of the three persons who are one, I want to put it to you that that, that, uh, when you're teaching the Trinity, this is just as fruitful, and I think a more fruitful formula uh, to work with for your own understanding and to give understanding to those you're instructing, and uh, just as, well, I say as fruitful as, more fruitful than the uh, one God is mysteriously three formula, which tends to leave you thinking that the distinctions between Father, Son, and Spirit perhaps don't matter as much as it matters that we should keep a strong grip on the fact that God is one. I think that it's very important that we understand the distinct work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I am attracted to the three who are mysteriously one formula, which, as I said, uh, Hodgson started running, and which a number of modern theologians have taken up and are exploring right now. I think it's a formula with much mileage in it for Christian understanding, and I want to commend it to you. If you wanted to see it expanded in a, how shall I say, in a a way that makes sense to laymen, look at the last issue of Christianity Today, but last but four, I think it is. Sorry, I should have the exact reference, I haven't got it. And you'll find in it, I think it's it's, it's an issue from the beginning of 1988, you'll find in it an article by Cornelius Plantinga, P-L-A-N-T-I-N-G-A, called, rather oddly, the perfect family. But what that phrase, the perfect family, is pointing to is the, 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 the idea that the archetype of the human family is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'm not sure that I myself would say that, but uh, I'm telling you that that's what he says, and that's what explains his title. What I like, though, about his article is that he surveys the fact that this has not been a formula for explaining the Trinity that has been very often used, and he tells you it started with Hodgson, and and he tells you that he himself embraces it, and many other theologians nowadays embrace it also. You don't have to talk in terms of the celestial family unless you want to, but do talk in terms of the three persons who are mysteriously one, that formula leads you straight into the doctrine of the gospel, which proclaims the distinct work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that, after all, is what, as Christian believers, we ought to be wanting to talk about and think about all the time. This is the staple truth on which our faith is based. Let's think and talk about God, then, in a way which fits in directly with the content of the gospel.
and makes the, the movement from the thought of what God is to the revelation of what God does an easy movement. Uh, there isn't so much ease in the transition from uh, we are those who trust the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit to the defensive statement that was made to the, uh, to the pagan world uh, in the early 2nd century AD, we are the persons who believe in one God but worship two, uh, worship two parties. But the other way of coming at it is, does in fact make for a much easier transition. That way of relating the Trinity to the Gospel involves a fair crash of gears, as you can see. The, two, uh, the, the, the exposition of the Gospel and the assertion of the Trinity don't seem to have much to do with each other when the Trinity is asserted that way. Uh, as if uh, in that sort of assertion, you see, what the theologian, the teacher, is most concerned about is maintaining that there is only one God. More, more fruitful is the type of teaching which says, we are saved by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit working together, and those three persons are one God, as a matter of fact. So at least I think, and I put the thought to you for your reflection. I am an enthusiastic social trinity man. And for the reason stated, I want the formulation of the trinity which makes it easiest for me to state the gospel. Okay? Now I finished the material that I had to present to you, and once more, monologue may give way to dialogue for a few minutes. Are there any questions, comments, observations, anything? Yeah, over there. say a little more. The, question asks, the, the questioner asks about the pattern of cooperation that scripture reveals, and the pattern, I think, is the same pattern, essentially, all the time. It's a pattern in which the initiative is always with the Father, that's the first thing to say, but the Father gets done the things that he plans to get done through the agency of the Son and the Spirit. The Son is always Son in relation to the Father. He does the Father's will. In relation to the sending of the Spirit, the questioner rightly pointed out that in John 14, 15, 16, there are verses which speak of the Father sending the Spirit and the Son sending the Spirit. And the Christianity of the West has always held those statements together and said, the Holy Spirit proceeds in the sense of being sent to us from the Father and the Son both. And it doesn't seem to me that there's any problem in that. What one finally says about the Spirit is that the Spirit is doing the will of the Father, so that sometimes he's called the Spirit of the Father, and he's also doing the express will of the Son, and so he's called the Spirit of Christ, whom Christ sends. The New Testament hasn't got a consistent vocabulary for talking about these things. What's consistent is the way of thinking 
not the terms in which that way of thinking is expressed. Often the Father is simply referred to as God. You saw that, for instance, in the passage I quoted from 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 6. Um, one Spirit, um, one Lord, the, and the same God, God who works all in all. But I'm saying that we should understand all these references to the work of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, or the work of God and the Son and the Spirit, if you like, as we should understand all these statements in Trinitarian terms according to that pattern which I just spelled out, um, as you heard, and which I thought I, I, I had spelled out in that way in the class itself. Okay? Well, there and then here. There first. I'm asked whether John 14:28, the text which reports Jesus as saying that the Father is greater than I, um, points to economic as distinct from essential subordination. And my answer is yes, indeed. In activity, the person who initiates the activity is naturally called the greater one. Jesus does nothing of himself. He waits for his Father's lead. That is part of the picture of father and son. As a matter of fact, in the human family also, according to the biblical ideal, the father will initiate the son's business is to obey his father. A question over here. I'm puzzled sometimes by the references in Paul's letters to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you perhaps answer by your answer to the first question, but I wonder whether you could uh, just throw some light on that terminology. I don't think the terminology is especially significant. Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is, the fr is a phrase that you would expect, I think, because Jesus did, after all, regularly pray to person number one as Father, and Paul must have known that. God of our Lord Jesus Christ is perhaps more surprising. Jesus himself is recorded as using that language. Um, do you remember in John 20, he says, uh, says to Mary Magdalene, go and tell my brethren, I ascend to my father and your father to my God and your God. But it wasn't common on Jesus' part to use that phraseology. And uh, I suppose that Paul uses it in order to make this point, that Jesus served his father. Uh, he served his father as men must serve God. He was, after all, God incarnate. And as God incarnate, he becomes the model of human obedience. Perhaps, the, perhaps there is a profound, um, a profound hint being dropped in this phrase of the two natures. I mean, the divinity and the humanity of Jesus, I don't know. The phrase, God of our Lord Jesus Christ, would more naturally point to him as uh, human and the model of human obedience. Um, modeling, you see, the obedience that we must show to the one who is our God. And Father points to the eternal relationship between the first and second persons uh, who who are two of the three who are God. But I'm not sure about that. Um, I, I notice from other places in Paul's letters that he was a man of a type that I know well, and I'm sure you do too. There are lots of people like Paul in the world in this respect that I'm going to specify. He has a very, very strong mind and a very, very clear head. People are always talking about Paul's logic, and they're right. He knows his own mind, and he thinks things out very exactly and consistently, and is able to sustain consistent, um, consistent line, complex lines of thought without contradicting himself or getting vague and fuzzy. He's a very remarkable man in that way. But, like others who have strong mind and minds and clear heads in this way, he's not actually 
fastidious about his language. He isn't perhaps even an expert with language. What he can do is use words in a way which enables you to grasp his thought. He doesn't always use them elegantly. He sometimes uses them in a way which, if you concentrated on what he's doing with the words rather than the flow of thought, would seem simply clumsy. He will go off on a word. He'll take a word and then use it in a number of distinct senses um, in, the same in the same context, so that if you weren't following the flow of thought, it would be confusing. He uses the word law, for instance, in at least four senses, in the latter half of Romans 7 and the first half of Romans 8. He uses the word firstborn in two quite distinct senses, in that paragraph that, <coughs> of which we read some, in Colossians chapter 1, he is the firstborn of all creation or over all creation. That's a way of saying that the word firstborn there is uh, being used to express the thought that the, the Son existed before all creation. But then the word turns up again in verse 18. He is the firstborn from among the dead. Here the thought is different. He is the first of the many dead who are going to be raised. But that's a different uh, use of the word firstborn from the earlier use, where the word excludes Christ, the Son, from the category of things created. And on its second use, he is the first of those raised from the dead. He isn't excluded at all. Well, Paul can do this with language. Uh, and from some standpoints, it's clumsy. But if you're following the thought, uh, you, he, he always makes himself clear. You can always see what he's driving at. You never, um, you're, you're never left completely <coughs> confused as to what he's talking about, except in those places where... He tells us uh, in his letter, or tells the recipients of his letters that he isn't saying everything he knows or everything that they know. And there are one or two such cases. But now, since Paul was that kind of man in his use of words, it probably would never have struck him that God, in the phrase God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, um, could be rather startling as uh, a description or, or as part of the phrase that describes the Son of God whom his readers all worship. I don't think I know, and therefore I don't think I'm able to say any more than that. Um, the thought is clear. The thought is acceptable. It's, it's in John chapter 20 from the Savior's own lips. Uh, the wording at first is startling. But then there's a good deal of wording in Paul that is startling. That, that's uh, what I'm saying in hope that it alleviates the perplexity. Okay? There's <clears throat> a question here. Why was the doctrine of the I'm asked why the doctrine of the Trinity wasn't defended before the 4th century. The answer is really that it wasn't being explicitly attacked before the 4th century. The first person explicitly to attack it was uh, Arius. Prior to that, the various formulations concerning God that were being tried out, the Logos doctrine and the doctrine that God is one person playing three parts, most notably. Uh, those doctrines were not attacks on the Trinity, but they were attempts to explain it, inadequate attempts. But they were understood by those who uh, disagreed with um, what was being said, not as um, intentional heresy, intentional denial of the Trinity, but as failed theories. There was actually a good deal of controversy about uh, the... Sabellian, that is the modalist position, um, August, uh, sorry, not August, Tertullian, right at the beginning of the third century, wrote very strongly against a man named Praxius who took up that position, and in the course of his, uh, his book against Praxius, he affirms the Trinity very strongly. He uses the word Trinitas. Um, he talks about three persons, tres persona. He's a man ahead of his time, as a matter of fact. Nobody in his day seems to have seen the significance of what he was doing. 
but he does it in the manner of uh, a schoolmaster, really, saying, look, Prexius, you were trying, I know, to spell out the Christian truth about God, but you made a fair mess of it. This is how it ought to be said. And there, there, there is some more controversy about uh, how you explain the Trinity in the third century. And uh, it's some, actually, some in the, in, the, in the second, in Irenaeus, for instance. But the distinction is between uh, rival attempts to explain the Trinity um, and a uh, denial of the Trinity which demoted Jesus from uh, being personally God and yet inconsistently said, but we still ought to worship him. That was when Athanasius blew his whistle and said this is intolerable and impossible. But nobody had said anything like that before. Uh, that's my summary answer to you. I hope it helps. Uh, time is gone and we must close. Uh, you are dismissed. I look forward to seeing you tomorrow when we'll be attempting to talk about the character of God. Interesting stuff, and I hope that you found that to be informative and biblically helpful. Uh, J.I. Packer did a masterful job. Now, if you have any questions regarding anything said by Dr. Packer regarding the doctrine of the Trinity, although I'm not him, I can, I'll can i act as a surrogate and try to give it my best college try. If you have a tough question regarding the doctrine of the Trinity, you can forward your emails to me. Send your email to me, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ in his vicarious death on the cross. For all of your sins. Amen.